Good morning. If you have your Bible or New Testament with you, would you take it out, please, and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 and verse 24 is where we'll begin uh, as far as our scriptural argumentation here in just a moment. Acts chapter 17 and verse 24. There's no handout this morning due to the nature of our topic, uh, but I'm happy to email or copy this material to any who ask. 2 Kings 17 and a number of other places in the Old Testament prophets tell that one of the reasons that Israel was allowed by God to be taken into Assyrian captivity is because they sacrificed their children. Uh, they burned them alive in worship to idols, specifically Molech. And we would not be so barbaric as Americans. Uh, no, the idols in our case are that of sexual rebellion and personal choice. Strong appeal to sensuality and sexuality is all around us in our society. We know that. You just have to live here. And at the same time, we are told that there should be no consequences to these actions, that we shouldn't be punished by unwanted or unexpected responsibilities that might come about because of our desire and worship of pleasure, like pregnancy and raising children. And the end result is what we call in our society abortion. Uh, at the very beginning of the lesson, let me say this. It is possible, uh, even statistically likely, that in this audience there is someone or some ones who have had abortions in times past. In fact, in my years as a preacher, which is uh, now longer than some and shorter than some, I've encountered Christian men and women racked with grief over this very action that they took earlier in life. And so my first question is, what should our attitude be toward those who have, who have done this, who have committed this sin? And let me say clearly, it should be mercy and compassion and love. God's grace and the sacrifice of Christ can forgive this sin as any other. It is not unforgivable. And if that describes you this morning, you cannot let guilt eat you up over what you've done in times past. Go to God for forgiveness and true repentance and allow Him to use you in His service. But at the same time, that shouldn't stop us from warning those who might be caught up in this situation in the future or calling to action God's people against this great evil. And it's an appropriate time to discuss these things as Christians, uh, to talk about this with the uh, overturn of Roe v. Wade in the United States Supreme Court a few weeks ago. And let me say on the onset, um, I am not unbiased on this issue. I, I rejoice at this outcome. Uh, I was at camp, actually, when we found out that this had taken place. And uh, my, uh, my emotions were stirred in that moment. There was a uh, a sense of surprise. This is not something that I expected to, to actually happen in my lifetime. Uh, there was relief. Um, there was joy. Uh, and I thought about the, the responsibility uh, that stands before each one of us because this has taken place. I want you to know, I don't have to tell you, that this is an emotional issue. It's emotional for me and it's emotional for others. And many arguments could be made this morning only appealing to emotion. But what I want to do instead is appeal to Scripture and appeal to reason. And though I have much, much more that I could say on this, and 
Depending on how long I go, you might be surprised to hear that. But I'm limiting myself this morning to the main issues that I believe should be considered as Christians. And third, along this line, politics are not my arena from this pulpit. Never have been, never will be. And I am not one personally to feel pressured or feel the need to preach on every fad or every wind of doctrine or every current event in our country. I believe in the timelessness of Scripture. And if we preach Scripture and make good applications, then those applications will flow easily and naturally to things that are going on in the world around us. But we are about to experience a seismic shift in what states are allowed to do in regard to laws concerning abortion. Something, again, that I frankly never thought I would see in my lifetime. So what is the scriptural, biblical response? What is the Christian scriptural response to abortion in light of recent events. That's what I want us to consider for a few moments this morning. What is the Christian's response? Well, consider, first of all, that truth matters, right? I mean, truth should matter to a Christian. What is true and what is false? And that's very difficult sometimes to ascertain because we live in a time of disinformation, and there is so much propaganda on this and other topics. So uh, after... um, extensive research, if I might put it in those terms. Here are some truths, not propaganda. First of all, less abortions will take place now. Praise God. Praise God that millions of lives will be saved because of this decision. And we know that because in Texas, after the law prohibiting abortions, after about six weeks into pregnancy, took place in uh, September, early September of 2021, The number of abortions statewide from September to December dropped by 46% compared to the same period in 2020. And that's according to data from the Texas Health and Human Services Commission. Abortions in the first month after the law dropped 60%. Now keep in mind that's in comparison to 2020 when abortions were already down because of the pandemic and everybody being isolated and so forth. To get a fuller picture of that, I looked at abortions in neighboring states, Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and New Mexico, and though abortions in those states did increase, it was nowhere near enough to account for the decrease in the state of Texas. And there has been a large overall decline in abortions, and that is to be expected to uh, increase, the decline will increase as more states pass laws in response to the Supreme Court decision. Additionally, people are going to be more serious about not getting pregnant because of this decision. Right or wrong, and their actions in regard to that, that's the reality. And we should rejoice that lives are going to be saved. A second truth is this. Treatments for other non-elective procedures are not outlawed in any state uh, in our union. In all states, limiting or outlawing abortion and that includes trigger laws that are going into effect because Roe v. Wade has been overturned. The laws include exemptions for medical emergencies and allow abortions to be performed if the mother's life is at risk. Many states also have laws that have specific language exempting certain treatments like ectopic pregnancies under the state's abortion statutes to clear up confusion for providers of services to women in these areas. And additionally, federal law, just in the last couple of weeks, currently requires that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services 
provide abortion medication in limited circumstances, including if the life of the woman is in danger. Now, whether you agree with those things or not, with the laws and the way they're written and all of those things, this is the reality. And seeing reality matters. Truth matters. And some will say, well, the law doesn't specifically impact those things like treatments for miscarriages or maternal sepsis or other infections, those things that are not impacted by the law, but we won't have the same access to certain medications if those medications could be used in abortion. So I did a lot of research on that. And in talking to healthcare providers, in addition to my research, the dosages are different. There are checks and balances to make sure that these medications are used for legal purposes, and none of the medications are being denied for legitimate, non-abortive purposes. That's the truth. And at the same time, I think we need to be careful as Christians. We need to be careful not to fall for or promote falsehoods. There have been falsehoods that have been promoted about both of these first two points that I lay forth, and yet at the same time, there have been some Christians or some, those, some of those who claim to be Christians promoting falsehoods as well. And, and I'm not saying that this is malicious or intentional, but we need to be careful. For example, you maybe have heard that there is a California law that is being considered that allows for infanticide. That was something that I heard within the last couple of weeks. And yet when I did research and read about it, perhaps originally it could have been interpreted that way, but the... Uh, the bill has been rewritten clarifying that that is not the case. And there is plenty of real information out there. And so let's not believe the propaganda or propagate the propaganda. Which brings us to the biblical truth on the topic. Let's be clear about this. Nowhere in the Bible, including the New Testament, is abortion specifically and explicitly condemned. But I believe that as honest Bible students, we are forced to draw certain reasonable and inescapable conclusions because of what the Scripture does say in regard to life and the taking of life. And I believe that God expects us to make this inference because He implied it. What is the Christian response? Well, truth matters, but we are reminded that God is the giver and God is the taker of life. In speaking to, to non-believers, this is where Paul started in Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bible open there, uh, let's read beginning in verse 24. Acts chapter 17 and verse 24. God, Paul says, speaking to the Athenians, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move, we have our very being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. In God we live. God is the giver of life. He's the creator. He gives us life and existence physically, and he is the one who gives us the opportunity for eternal life. And without him, there would be no life. There would be no life of any kind, but specifically no human life, no me. 
in God we move. He animates us. He allows us to live. And we have our very being. Because we as humans are more than the rest of creation. We do not just have life. We are not just animated by God. We have a being. We have a soul, a spirit, by which we reason, by which we love, and by which we can choose to seek God. And so taking of this very special life is something that is reserved only for God. In Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39, this is Moses speaking and, and quoting God. Now see that I, even I, am He. And there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Only God and those to whom God has delegated this authority have the right to take the life of another human being. And if abortion is taking the life of another, if that's what we're talking about, if that's what it is, and we're going to go through some scriptures here in a second to see what the scriptures say about that. But if that's the case, then no one, not the mother, not the father, not the doctor, has the right to take that life. And all the scriptures regarding murder and taking of life would apply to this if abortion is taking the life of a human being. So what does the scripture say about that? Well, number three, life begins before birth. Uh, we won't turn to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but obviously this is where life begins uh, for um, us in this creation. And we see that man is made in the image of God, that, that humanity is something unique, something special. And we see that the biblical authors, as they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrestle with this idea. Turn to Psalm 139, if you would. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, David says in verse 13, For you formed my inward part, you covered or weaved me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame, um, probably talking about his skeletal system, is not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Uh, David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And you weaved me. You, you went through this process of creation when I was in my mother's wombs. You saw my substance and who I was even when I was unformed in this physical way. Uh, we think about the prophet Jeremiah, and when he is called in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, then the word of the Lord came to me, to Jeremiah, saying, before I formed you, before I, God, formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I set you apart. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Consider uh, Proverbs chapter 6. If you want to turn there in your Bible, Proverbs chapter 6.
These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. We have some responsibility in regard to blood that is shed, and specifically as we think about innocent blood. Is that not the most innocent of blood when we consider babies who can't, who can't provide for themselves? And yet again, this is not just an appeal to our emotion. Is it innocent blood that we're talking about? Is the baby in the womb the same as the baby outside of the womb? Well, notice how Luke the physician refers to babies both in and out of the womb. Turn to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1, if you would. Luke chapter 1. When the angel appears to Mary, this is what the angel says to her. As recorded by Luke, who was uh, an ancient world physician, doctor. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. So Elizabeth is, is pregnant. She is expecting whom we will call John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And so Mary goes to Elizabeth. And in verse 41, when she enters the house and she greets Elizabeth, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe, the baby, maybe your translation says, leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously this is a special circumstance because it's John the Baptist We know that he is going to be endowed with the Holy Spirit. He has all of these special things that he's going to do. And yet the word that is used here by Luke for baby is referring to him while he is in the womb, before he is born. If we drop down to verse 44, notice this. Elizabeth says, For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe, the baby, leapt in my womb for joy. Uh, Same word for baby in both of those instances. Now we drop down to chapter 2 and verse 12. In speaking to the shepherds, the angels say this. uh, In looking for the son of David, Christ the Lord, in verse 12 it says, And this will be the sign to you, you will find a babe, a baby in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. That's the same word. Same word in Greek for this baby, this child in the womb, and out of the womb. John the Baptist in the womb, Jesus out of the womb. Drop down to verse 16. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe, the baby lying in a manger. Uh, Even if we go later in the book, uh, as Jesus is an adult, and yet he's talking about babies or infants in Luke chapter 18 and verse 15. Luke chapter 18 and verse 15. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Uh, that word for infants there, same exact word in Greek as what we saw for, for baby earlier in Luke chapter 1, in Luke chapter 2, and now here in chapter 18. From the perspective of the biblical writers, the baby was the same. In the womb, out of the womb, it's still a human being, it is still a baby. And some have tried to uh, suggest that at the very least the Jews in Jesus' day believed 
that life does not begin while in the womb. It begins with the first breath. And I will admit that there is some extra-biblical evidence for this, and that's something that I've studied over the last few months. And as I've studied it more, I've come to realize that, number one, the writings that are cited to mean this probably don't mean that. And number two, that there is much more extra-biblical evidence, both pre- and post-New Testament, both Jewish and Christian, that explicitly condemns abortion as sinful. But even if you take that, what I've laid out before you here, and there's more that we could talk about on this subject, but if you take that and you say, I'm not fully convinced in my own mind and heart uh, that, there, that there is this similarity, this sameness between a baby in and out of the womb as what you're suggesting. My question is, there is a burden of proof. And where is that burden of proof? The one who argues against what I believe the Scriptures teach in regard to this has the burden to prove that a baby in the womb is not a human life and that we have the right to kill it, whatever it is, even if it isn't a human life. And if they are wrong about that, even from a scriptural perspective, then we will be violating multiple clear commandments by, by God and from God. I need solid teaching of Scripture to accept anything. But certainly when we consider a position that has such dire consequences as taking a human life, I need to see where Scripture clearly teaches that that's allowed. And I don't find that anywhere. And here's the thing. Um, I believe the Bible teaching is clear on this. But the fetus is not a baby argument just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense biblically, but it also doesn't make sense scientifically, and it doesn't make sense logically. And the elephant in the room uh, in regard to all the discussions on this is that deep down, I think just about everybody knows that. This, this development is more than a clump of cells. This is more than, uh, this is more than a parasite. This is more than a tumor at any stage of development. But even more powerfully, I would suggest that this sonogram of a baby in a womb and this baby seven days after it is born and this young man seven years after he was born, this is the same person. This is the same human being. And I don't need a medical degree to see that and to know that and understand that. This is the same person. And what's interesting is, for this lesson, I've tried very hard to uh, present a fair case from the other side as we go through it, but also to use quotes from those who are pro-abortion, who are for abortion. Planned Parenthood, for example, has softened their position on this whole, well, it's, it's not a baby until it's born argument, acknowledging, for example, in a recent ad, well, that's not a black and white issue. It's not a black and white issue. I went to their website over this past week and went all through it. Um, and finding information on their website about whether a fetus is a baby, a human life, is buried. It is very difficult to find because they understand that this appeal, this argument, doesn't make logical, reasonable sense to inform people. And yet, here's something shocking. According to a 2022, from this year, Pew Research poll 
One in three Americans, a third of all Americans, believe both of these statements to be true. That life begins at conception. That this, in the womb, is a human life. And the decision about whether to have an abortion should belong solely to the pregnant woman. One in three Americans believe that. And what that tells us is that as a society, we are moving away from strictly an argument, is it life or not life? Because a third of Americans say, yes, I believe that it is a life and the mother should have the right to terminate that life if she so chooses. In other words, for many, life is not the issue. Choice, and specifically the choice of the mother, is the issue. Now let me again give you some examples of this from those who are pro-abortion. Uh, take a lady named Mary Elizabeth Williams. She's an author, a staff writer for Salon Magazine, online and in publication. She's a pro-choice activist and a mother. Several years ago, she wrote an article entitled, So What If Abortion Ends a Life? And the subtitle, um, I just pulled this uh, off the internet. The subtitle is a little hard to read, but it says, I believe that life starts at conception, and it's never stopped me from being pro-choice. Now, in this article, she sees the hypocrisy in the whole a fetus isn't a life argument, and she calls it to task, saying, fetuses don't qualify as human life only if they're intended to be born. She says, here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. And that's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, she says, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body she reside, it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her always. She goes on to say that though she is a mother now, at this point in her life, if she found out she was currently pregnant, she would have, quote, the world's greatest abortion. And concludes her article with this chilling paragraph. Abortion saves lives, not just in the most medically literal way, but in the roads that women who have the choice then get to go down, and the possibilities for them and for their families. And I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time. Even if I still acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. A life worth sacrificing. Are we any better than the children of Israel? if that is our attitude. Now that's opinion, of course, and maybe you say, well, that's the opinion of one woman, and maybe she's representative of some, but that's not the medical opinion. Well, from the field of science and medicine, two doctors, one Italian and the other Australian, published a paper in 2013 in the academically legitimate, scholarly, peer-reviewed Journal of Medical Ethics, and it caused quite a stir because it was entitled, After Birth Abortion, Why Should the Baby Live? And in it, they argue that there is no discernible difference between a fetus and a newborn, that there's just not a difference there, scientifically and medically. Well, I agree. 
So they conclude that abortions are wrong, right? Wrong. They argue then that if we have the right to kill the fetus, then we also have the right to kill the newborn. Here is the abstract to that article that summarizes what they concluded. Abortion is largely accepted for reasons that do not have anything to do with the fetus's health. By showing that, one, both fetuses and newborns do not have the same moral status as actual purpose persons, two, the fact that both are potential persons is morally irrelevant, and three, adoption is not always in the best interest of actual people, like the mother, the authors argue that what we call afterbirth abortion, killing a newborn, should be permissible in all cases where abortion is, including cases where the newborn is not disabled. This is not fiction, folks. And maybe you say this is all kind of far-fetched, and yet there have been a number of articles written in magazines and scholarly magazines both defending and condemning their conclusions. History tells us that every society, you look at the Greeks and Romans, every society that embraced legal abortion also eventually allowed the killing of unwanted infants. Why? Because we see and understand that these two are the same, in the womb and out of the womb. And this is when the hypothetical questions start. And I think we need to take a little bit of time this morning to deal with some of the what about questions. Um, you know what they are. Uh, I'm not going to go into great detail on this, but um, for example, what about rape? What about incest? What about the health of the mother? What about birth defects? My answer to these questions is this. We have established biblical teaching on the sanctity of life from the womb. A child with a defect has no less right to live than one born perfectly healthy. I don't think there's anybody who would argue from a biblical standpoint. Now, from a secular standpoint, from an atheistic standpoint, from a naturalistic standpoint, there are those who would argue. But from a biblical standpoint, no one would argue that it isn't wrong to kill a one-year-old. Okay? Everybody would agree that's murder. Okay? Maybe it's manslaughter in certain accidental cases, so forth, but it's wrong to kill a one-year-old. So I ask you to just replace... This word fetus that is used for the baby in the womb, replace that with one-year-old child for every argument made about abortion. What if a one-year-old child is a product of rape? Do we have the right to kill him or her? What if a one-year-old child is the product of incest? Do we have the right to kill him or her? What if a one-year-old child is impacting the health of his or her mother? Do we have the right to kill him or her? What if a one-year-old child is born with birth defects? Do we have the right to kill him or her? What if a one-year-old child is probably going to die anyway? Do we have the right then to kill him or her? As Christians, we believe that God is the giver and taker of life. And we believe in the sanctity of life both in and out of the womb, because scripturally, this is the conclusion that must be drawn. But secondly, I think we have to be careful. I have to think we have to be careful not to be drawn into these false either-or dichotomies that are incredibly rare. Obviously, we should do everything that we can to save the lives of both the mother and the child. 
And things are rarely that simple, that it's either the mother or the child. Those are our choices. Again, I'm not a, a doctor, a healthcare professional, but the testimonies are too numerous to count, both that I know personally, those that have been relayed to me, and those that are publicly known because they're in the public sphere, where the doctor said one thing. There's a choice between the mother and the child. The mother chose to take that pregnancy forward, and the reality ended up being something else, that both the mother and the child uh, ended up living and being healthy. One of the testimonies that I've come up with over and over in my research from those who are pro-abortion is that this idea that new laws outlawing abortion is going to force doctors in these states to wait and see for sure if the pregnancy is non-viable or life-threatening to the mother before ordering an abortion. And they say that as if that's a bad thing. I mean, shouldn't that have been what we were doing all along? Shouldn't we be, be, be sure about this, that it is life-threatening to the mother, that the baby is non-viable, as it is so-called? Um, I think that betrays. I think that betrays the attitude that this is never really about the health of the mother and the baby. Never is too strong a word. This is not normally and usually about the health of the mother and the baby, but about other factors. And as to those other horrible, despicable ways that one might become pregnant that we referred to earlier, let me say categorically, the problem of sin is never solved with more sin. That is always true. The problem of sin is never solved with more sin, especially if that sin involves taking the life of another. It didn't work with Cain. It didn't work with David. And it didn't work with Judas, even in taking his own life. It just made matters worse in every instance. But let's be honest as well and truthful as well about these uh, despicable ways. Rape and incest are not the issue. A tiny percentage of all abortions are for these reasons. It is believed to be less than 1%. And it's difficult to, to qualify that exactly because not all states give reasons for uh, why these procedures are taking place. In the state of Florida, uh, one of the few states that does track the reasons for abortion, less than 0.4%, not 4%, less than 0.4% were for cases of rape, incest, or the life of the mother was endangered. Everyone tells you that this is where the argument is taking place. Let me tell you that is not true. The vast majority of cases, over 95%, were for elective or social or economic reasons. I don't want this lifestyle. I don't want a girl. I don't want that right now. I can't afford it right now. It will impact my emotional and mental health. Not for these other reasons that are so common in the news. Now, I don't believe that there should be uh, exceptions in those cases, personally. I don't believe that the Scriptures teach that. But when we talk about these as being the norm, that is simply not the case. And as a Christian, I tried to decide whether this was an emotional or reasonable argument. I think it's maybe a little bit of both. Let me say, as a Christian, it's a good thing that Mary wasn't pro-choice. You ever thought about that? Oh, that's extreme. What are you talking about? She is a perfect candidate for an elect elective procedure that would have been very dangerous in her time, but available in her time. 
the unplanned pregnancy of an unmarried mother who could possibly lose her fiancé and be ostracized from her society if this pregnancy goes forward. And yet she and Joseph didn't even consider it because they understood they understood of the sanctity of all life, all babies, including the one in her womb. But even Christians have been influenced by this choice view. And there are many who adhere to the commonly held catchphrase, I think it's wrong personally, and I wouldn't want to, but I wouldn't want to bind it on other people. The government needs to stay out of our lives. Do you agree with that? Well, I kind of agree with the government needs to stay out of our lives. And then the phrase I hear all the time is, you can't legislate morality. Well, what do you mean by that, really? That you can't make people act right just by passing a law? Well, that's true. We have thousands of laws that prove that point. But now that phrase is taken, has taken on the meaning, the government doesn't have the right to pass laws dealing with morality. And that is just ridiculous. The majority of government legislation has moral ramifications. It is a moral question whether people are permitted to steal the property of others or take the life of another. Yes, there are societal concerns with that, but there are moral implications with that as well because it has an impact on other people. And perhaps people mean that the state should not interfere on matters of private morality. What's the phrase? You know it. The government has no business regulating the behavior of consenting adults. You've heard that. And whether that is true or not, we'll save for another lesson. But the moment these so-called consenting adults involve someone else, someone who does not and cannot consent, it becomes a public social issue, not a private one. At the very, very least, I think everyone agrees that abortion involves the future existence of a potential human being. One whose only recourse is not through their own strength, they're helpless, but through the actions of others. So what exactly is the government's role in our lives? Um, well, let's turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Um, and then we can start drawing some conclusions on what we ought to be doing. Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And we remember, of course, that he is writing to not just people in the Roman Empire, Paul is writing to people in Rome, and all of the corruption of the Roman Empire at that time. And yet he says there is subjection here, there is government authority here. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Uh, we take that in the context of the rest of Romans, the rest of the Bible. Obviously, there is resisting that should take place over matters of faith. If they're asking us to do something uh, that God would not allow us to do or telling us not to do something that God commands. But other than that, there is submission that's expected. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he, the authority, is God's minister, servant to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. The government does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, servant, and avenger 
to execute wrath on him who practices evil. That's the government's God-given role. And governments can and do, often do, grow corrupt. But their role is to avenge wrath on him who practices evil. Now, what does that word avenge imply? Punishment of the wicked, sure. But if all that was, if that was their only role, then Paul could have just said, then they punish the wicked. But he doesn't. Avenge implies that there is someone else who is impacted by this wicked action, and they need justice. By extension, the government doesn't just recto, uh, reactively avenge the innocent but has a duty to protect the innocent and avenges for those who cannot defend themselves. It is not only allowed by God, this is part of His plan. So yes, we should legislate morality that protects life of those who cannot protect themselves. Um, And yet, how many state legislators, national legislators, senators do we have in the audience? Presidents. Stephanie told me before I got up, um, I know you've worked hard on this, You're going to do great, but you probably can never run for president now. Um, What should I do just as a Christian? What can we do? Number one, don't ignore the issue. Um, Isn't that clear in Scripture? Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the speechless. In the case of all who are appointed to die, open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Who is more in need? who cannot plead for themselves and yet they are appointed to die than those who might be impacted by abortion. Proverbs 24, verses 11 and 12. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. The millions that have died since 1973, is it not a slaughter? If you say, surely we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? We know this. We know what has been going on in our country. He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? And so this is an issue where we must speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Talk about it. Talk about it with your teenagers, especially, as they enter a world that is lying to them on every side. Don't be afraid to talk about it with your friends and neighbors. Speak the truth. But speak that truth in love from a biblical, scriptural, Christian perspective. But also don't get drawn into worthless debates on side issues. Focus on the issue. And the issue is not all of those other questions that we talked about. It's not birth defects. It's not even the welfare of the mother. Though those are all issues, they aren't the issue. What is the issue? The issue is whether or not we have the right to take an innocent life. And there are a myriad of horrible circumstances that can surround abortions. And we need to consider them... And we need to provide for them as best we can as Christians. But we cannot allow them to overshadow what is the case in the vast, vast majority of abortions. An unwanted, unplanned pregnancy that is terminated because the mother chooses to. And even in these other examples of secondary considerations, they do not trump the idea of an innocent life. There's lots of noise. Don't fall into those traps, especially ones where we don't have to argue with what's being argued against us. I don't have to take a position just because 
uh, someone who is pro-abortion says that I do. Just this last week, I read an article about a lady who was going in the HOV lane in Dallas. Did you see this? And she said, my unborn baby should count in the HOV lane. I shouldn't get a ticket for this. You know what I say? Absolutely. Take the HOV lane. Every pregnant woman should be able to take the HOV lane. I, I don't have to take the other side of that. How about this? If a woman is forced to have a baby by these laws, then the father should be just as liable for the support and raising of that baby. Absolutely! I agree wholeheartedly. Let's make it so. Let's make it law. My favorite. And I'm, trying, I'm not trying to be catty with this. Among some feminist circles, this is a common argument. Let's stop having sexual relationships with men unless they make a commitment to us and any unborn child that might result from our relationship. That's a great plan. I've heard that one before. How much better would it be if we were committed, let's say in a, in a covenant maybe? to this person with whom we're going to share ourselves and our children. Let's keep the focus on the issue. Do we have the right to keep an innocent life? And don't be drawn aside by these other arguments that have no bearing on the reality of the situation. What else should you do? Pray. Pray for the Lord's will to be done. Thank Him for all of the lives that have been saved. Over the last few weeks, I've prayed a lot of prayers for just that. Millions of lives that are going to be saved. You know what that, that means? There are millions of lives who need us, need the gospel, need Jesus Christ. And so I am asking Him for opportunities to help those mothers and babies who will have those needs because of this change in law. This is not something I expected to happen. Thank God it has. So be careful what you pray for. Because then there are responsibilities that come along with that, including supporting mothers and babies in need. I know I'm way over time. Bear with me with one more passage to turn to, please. Turn to Zechariah chapter 7, if you would. In Zechariah, the people have returned from Babylonian captivity. And Zechariah, along with Haggai, encourages them to rebuild the temple, that they need to reestablish their relationship with God. And um, they have some questions about that. They say, you know, should we continue in these fasts for the captivity now that we're not in the captivity? Um, and God's response is, you've got some way bigger issues than fasting that you need to worry about. And what are those issues? What does God say... Here's where your focus should be. I've allowed you to come back into a relationship with me. I have spared your nation. What is it you're supposed to be doing? Thus says the Lord of hosts, execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion, everyone, to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of, your plan, let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the alien, or the poor. What do those four have in common? They are all in a position where they can be easily exploited 
and taken advantage of. And it tells us a lot about us as a society. Do we actively try and do good to those in these categories? Bringing it into the New Testament, James says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And we have more mechanisms in our society as Americans to aid these people than, than maybe any other time in history. But it doesn't somehow absolve us as, of all our responsibility as Christians. What have I done to help with these? Now, I don't want to undermine Christians and what has been done. You look at statistics. Statistics show that Christians do more than any other group They adopt over twice the rate of everyone else. They give more to charities uh, by many magnitudes. But we need to remember, we need to remember that that's what we all should be doing as Christians. And we need to be reminded that this law, or more specifically the striking down of Roe v. Wade and the laws that are coming about in states, means that there will be more needs. And we as Christians should be at the forefront stepping up to meet those needs. It is not enough for us to be anti-abortion, as we're sometimes called. We need to be actively helping the fatherless and motherless. And who does that apply to more than the unborn? Support organizations like Sacred Selections, members of the church who work with families in fostering and adoption. But also support mothers. And let me end the lesson with this. Uh, If any unmarried young lady were to have an unplanned pregnancy, as has happened in times past here among our members, my prayer and my expectation, because I know you people, my prayer and my expectation is that we would envelop that woman and her child with love and support. A mistake in sexual sin is not the baby's fault. And whatever hardships the mother goes through can be handled with the support of the brethren. And we should rejoice. We should rejoice at the opportunity to help support that life and to help that mother raise that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so I would encourage um, anyone who might fall into this very scenario, would you give us that opportunity? You and your child are welcome here. We want to help. Because we believe that you and that child are fearfully and wonderfully made. Made in the image of God. And we rejoice that you, along with us, have the opportunity to know Him. If you're subject to the gospel call this morning, come now. While together we stand, while we stand.